I came into this career wanting to leave an impression, wanting to leave a legacy. I had no idea how that was going to take place, but I wanted to change the art form. And I think that story's still being written. Welcome to the Artist Becoming Podcast. Hey, Jess. Hey, Shelby, a five, six, seven, eight. Join us in weekly conversations with performing artists across stages, studios, rinks, fields, and screens. Every conversation, a chance to dive deep into the story of their becoming. All right, Shelby, let's get on into it. This episode's conversation features our guest, Georgina Pazkogan, a New York City ballet soloist, Broadway star, co-founder of Final Bow for Yellowface, and the newly minted authoress of Swan Dive, the making of a rogue ballerina. Yeah, she's a true artist becoming. Let's get into it. Oh yeah, and P.S., one last thing. You can go ahead and get Swan Dive anywhere that books are sold, and you're going to want to read this one. Georgina is hilarious, insightful, and really peels back the curtain, and we are releasing this episode just ahead of the UK release of the book, so go on and get it. Hello, Georgina Paskogan. We are beside ourselves to welcome you to this episode of Artists Becoming. Thank you for joining us to share your story. Oh man, well, thank you for having me. And I apologize for this Monday morning voice I've got going on right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's sultry, it's rogue, which is on brand. (laughs) Embrace it then. Absolutely. Um, Georgina, I've been following you since I was a wee little one at SAB and you've just been this truly singular and beautiful artist. I've seen you in so many roles classical, contemporary character roles, Broadway roles, and you're just an expansive human. And that transports so beautifully through your artistry. And I just want to thank you for your inspiration in in that regard. Um, I'm so excited to share the story of your becoming with our audience. And so just figured to ground the chat and for people who have not yet read your book, which we're going to talk about today, can you give us a little background on your, your artistic journey, maybe some pivot points that really defined you as the artist you are today? Well, wow. That was such a lovely, lovely glowing summary of my life in New York. Um, some pivotal moments about me. I'm well, I'm one of six children. I'm a multicultural woman. My dad's Filipino, my mother's Italian. Um, I came to New York City to pursue my dream, which is to become a professional ballerina. And I am very lucky to say I'm one of the few that have been able to make that happen. Um, I did come to the city a week before September 11th. So this this past couple of weeks has been really intense as I reflect on, on this like two decades here in New York. And then also just how much has changed, how much has unfortunately not changed. Um, and my, I guess like to sort of thread the question, we'll, we'll talk more in depth about it. It's just the pivotal moments in my career which was first leaving home, leaving family and forging a path that had not been made for someone who looks like me at New York City Ballet. And I think that has been filled with lots of mini um, milestones, 
But I think the biggest one was just first getting an apprenticeship and then getting promoted. And then another pivotal moment in my own personal becoming was stepping away from the institution that for so long really just wanted to, and I think still does want to hold its dancers close and not necessarily allow artists to share and expand. And I had to make that choice for myself, regardless of ramifications to grow as a person and an artist outside of the safety of, uh, safety and security, I think are fair words of New York City Ballet. Wow. Wow. I mean, you just basically hit on like 29 different questions that I could ask you to, to dive deeper into that. But I think I just want to first, the first thing that comes up when you speak is just your, the power of your voice and your eloquence. That's very rare in most dancers life, like your ability to articulate yourself so clearly in such a empowered way is, is just super rare. I guess my question would be at what point did you realize that you were different quotation marks in an industry that really doesn't embrace any type of different of any flavor <laughs> at all. And it's just a thread in our, in our conversations yet at the same time, it's those differences that make an artist that transcends the stage, you know? And so it's like, how, at what point did you acknowledge some type of difference in yourself? And then at what point did you, as opposed to perhaps resist that difference, like, did you have a complex relationship with trying to kind of push away what made you different? And, and then at what point did you discover this, like, I don't know what the word is for it, but like, it sounds like you had a, a breaking point where you knew like, I have to embrace this difference in myself and, and you started to do so. And it, it made for this kind of rogue, you know, concept that, that you are calling yourself the rogue ballerina, which you absolutely are. I'd love for you to dive into that a bit. Yes, of course. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for calling me eloquent. Sometimes I don't think like I am able to string two sentences together in a proper way that, and I, I feel like I communicate with people, this, this gets confusing in text messages, because I'll write like long prose. I'm one of those text people. Us too. I really, <laughs> like, I really like letters and people are like, I'm lost. And I'll like make analogies to things. Even when I'm teaching, I'll make analogies to things that have nothing to do with ballet. And they're like, wait, what? I mean, I get it, but like, what's your, where did your brain go? I don't know. I feel like I've always been, I have long conversations with the various genas who I call the committee in my head. Yes. And I think, as, <laughs> I think every person has a committee, but especially yep. women, we have the committee that we have like the bitches that we need to be, uh, I don't even know if I'm allowed to swear, but we have the, <laughs> we have the bitches in our head that are like, um, I'm, like you need to sit down. Like yeah, I don't totally. need this right now. And I think I've always had these conversations. Also, just being someone who, even with my family, I don't necessarily, you know, exactly fit in with them. And you have to speak up for yourself. And so I have three brothers, two sisters, and when I was training. For ballet class, my mom would like hide my dinner in the fridge so that my brothers wouldn't eat it. So I think I've always been used to just like this sort of weird pack mentality. <laughs> like, if you want it, 
you better eat it, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so that's kind of, I think, where I found this. I'm comfortable in being a, being okay, being alone. And I first realized I didn't quite fit in. I mean, like, I grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania. I can't say it's the most, you know, progressive area in the United States. And, but I never f- was made to feel other in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I know that I sit here. I mean, obviously our yeah. listeners can't see who I, what I look like, but just for, as a description, I have. Gorgeous, no. <laughs> Thank you. Everyone's gorgeous on this call. Well, I used to have bright red hair. Now I have like a dark wine colored hair. Oh, I'm and hair. I'm wearing some like lipstick because it's early Monday morning. <laughs> and I'm a Filipino and Italian heritage. And it, I was never, like I never, in Catholic school growing up, I didn't realize uh, that I, what I loved would make, like, that I didn't fit in. It was only when I moved to New York City, oddly, and then stepped into the halls of school of American Ballet that I was like, whoa, there is no one that looks like me up on the walls and in School of American Ballet. And I think the same pictures are up there 20 years later of the same dancers that it's just this, you know, white Eurocentric ideal. And you find yourself walking through those hallways and stepping into those amazing rooms and you have these amazing teachers. And it's not like the institution of ballet is purposely doing that. That's just who's been able to succeed. And I, I think, that impacted me a lot as a student and as just as a person. And then when I got into the company under different leadership than what we have now, I prefer not to use his name because I don't think we need to. And then it was really made clear to me that I do not fit in and I was asked to assimilate which now brings me to the point of this like idea of code switching in my life, not only in my personal life, but especially in the ballet world. I, my dad knew that I was, uh, uh, that his children can pass. I pass most of all, I look the most like my mom. I have the, the fairest of, this, of the olive skin tones in my family. And I think he keyed into that early on that like, wow, she can, she can pass. So he raised us in this sort of white trajectory. And he came here as a a brown man from the Philippines and immigrated, was forced to assimilate not only into our society, but he also entered the army. So it was like double assimilation. And he... Uh, as a retired, revered general surgeon, which I think is so impressive that he not only had license, a license to practice in Pennsylvania, but then he like told, told me like Virginia, New York at one point, like he really, really, really fought hard to give his family this upbringing, this lifestyle. And it's not easy to raise one kid. And my mom and my dad have raised six really, I, I would say, successful children. Um, so I 
without my stage makeup, I know that I pass, but it's the second I put on any sort of eyeliner, mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely apparent. So I didn't embrace this Filipino heritage I have. And it was always, I, I touch on it in the book a little bit, but like, you know, it was, a, it was made clear to me that that was a strike against me that Peter would not think like, oh, you're not the all American um, blonde hair, blue eyed. <laughs> I bet he had, and then, then you factor in that I am a really outspoken yes. individual, which is also something that, especially for women in the ballet, they, I, I feel like the institution of ballet is not used to giving agency to any of its dancers. And that's something that I advocate for a lot now these days. Wow. You know, so I'm so glad that you brought up the language of code switching. I read an essay by Zadie Smith when I was in school about how um, Obama struggled with that because he had this like very intellectual side and very successful career. And when he would speak in the, in that code, um, it felt very diminishing to where he came from and the people of his past and his, pe- his people in quotes. And then alternatively, he felt like he had to turn himself off when he would go back home to the suburbs of Chicago or whatever. And, and, at any given time felt like it was like, damned if you do, damned if you don't, to embrace one and and diminish the other. And it's interesting because you think of New York City as one the most diverse city in our country, that that would be something that's so embraced. And I think the conversation now by necessity, it's evolving. The industry, however, painfully slow is trying to evolve or at least trying to create spaces for conversation, conversation that inspires this type of evolution. And I think that your voice is extremely formative because you started speaking up far before there was a movement around it, which takes a shit ton of courage. Um, And I guarantee that that layer of grit on top of the baseline level of grit that everyone has to have to have a career in the performing arts really informed your artistry in a way that, I mean, most people probably can't identify with just because you had to reach so much further down and sideways and up to get to where you are. It just, I'm sure inside there's moments where it feels like you you are being pulled in 10 directions, but the way that you've translated that into your art form um, has gotten, I mean, has taken you to stages across the entire world. Um, How does that feel? Well, I, I, when I hear people like, take me out of myself out of my world and say like you have done this I'm like wow wow okay well yeah I guess I have done that but then I hold myself that, that like this this advocacy work and my just inner being of wanting things you know like to move forward. I love the ballet world so much. And that's why I wrote Swan Dive was to instigate conversation. And it kind of breaks my heart that like the book came out and instantly there was another faction created in my home company. That's not why I wanted to, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to just present my truth Mm -hmm. in a way that couldn't be made to be invisible because 
let's be honest, visibility is decided by the artistic director of each and every company. And I have no control over that. So this was a way of me finding my own agency once again to share my voice with a larger audience because I feel like it's important to meet the individuals who make up New York City Ballet in, in its vastness and its diversity that's present, not just in casting on stage. I really feel like that's the only way we are going to be able to get the art form of ballet to survive moving forward into the future. It's, it's to make sure that the, the audience knows that there are real people on stage giving up re like real, making real sacrifices. Um, and I think this idea of, it hasn't come without a cost. Like I'm realizing that I suffer from extreme anxiety and I'm living in that right now as I'm a, on the precipice, God willing, COVID willing to return to the stage, not the first night of season on Tuesday, which will be really exciting, but I think equally exciting will be Wednesday, the day after, in a diff totally different program, in the Road Ballerina program. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, you know, I'm just, I just feel like I want to share this story. Like I had a breakdown the other day on Friday in the first stage complete in lights, in costume, it should have been such a euphoric moment. And in, the, in, in that moment, because we were having to replace so many dancers because of injury and, and sickness, it's, it, it, just, it just all hit me out, out of control. In reality, like I, it doesn't matter how hard I train or how well I do this on the Dom pirouette or if, you know, it, it could all be ripped away in a second anyway. And I had to, and I was just, I mean, I was also just like frustrated with how the, how the process was going. Cause like, you know, I just, if you're in costume and lights, you're just gonna, you like as a performer, this is hard to explain to listeners who maybe don't understand. Like you just want to rip the bandaid off, get like super tired, run the ballet and then, okay, we'll come back. Let's fit in all the, all the missing pieces of the poor souls who have to get thrown into this ballet. Um, that was not happening in the sequence, but then there were so many other, like we were able to be maskless, which was another trigger. And, and I broke down into these tears. And I also was, it, it just was this juxtaposition of being asked to like, oh yeah, the very basics of ballet, like, oh, you should turn out here and you need to do this. And like those basic, and so it was the macro and the micro. <laughs> was like I am least worried about my turnout right now <laughs> I am freaked out how to make it make sense and so I broke down and then I had like and and I will say that there there are colleagues who have supported me through this process and there are colleagues who have not understood and then taken a beat either read the book or took a moment for themselves and have come back. And so like, I had a few colleagues say like, I don't know why you're putting so much pressure on yourself. You don't have to, like you being here is enough. And yes, that is true. But it also came from uh, non people of color. Cause I was obviously, I'm clearly the only woman of color in the cast. And I've written this book and I was like, no, there is a lot of pressure here. And there's pressure because you've made it. You are like, the, this came from, and it came lovingly. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't one of these, 
constant intention versus impact. And it was like, yes, of course I am enough, but also there's another level in which I still have not made it to what I like. I still have goals here. And I know for a fact that those goals quite possibly could have been torpedoed by, by me sharing my story in the way that I've done and by me being the person living in my truth here. And so, yes, there is a certain amount of pressure that these, that, that, that some of my colleagues can't, can't even fathom because they don't, they don't live in this lens. They don't live in the loneliness of being the only, I am the only Asian American woman in the upper tiers of the New York City Ballet that comes with a new inherent set of pressure. Mm -hmm. Did I put it on myself? Maybe. Do other people put it on me? Of course, because I have coming back to this idea of having to dig deeper, having to forge, having to clear the path for myself to be able to be seen in these roles, that takes a lot of extra emotional and physical labor, right? Totally. I, I really love how just a a moment before you, you described, you know, seeing the images in the halls of your school and, and you said that those, you said those people were able, you use the word able. And what I also think that the word that needs to be placed there is allowed. Those people have been allowed or given the permission. And it's not just about ability, as you know, it's that idea of there have been a certain type of people who have traditionally been given the permission in this industry. Like, here's your permission to shine. And for others, they haven't been given that permission or that allowance, right? It's like, no, actually, this is this is what it is. And, and I think that um, that is an, an incredible pressure to hold on your shoulders. And, and what you were just speaking to is that what it sparks in me is that ballet is like the, it breeds perfectionists and it breeds a very, very type of controlling mindset because you literally have to control the body, the technique, et cetera. And when you get into those moments that you just described, like where you have this breakdown, it's because so much of what happens outside of the technique is completely outside of your control. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not just things that happen on stage. Like someone gets injured, someone's this, you get injured, you're whatever. You could be walking to the theater and something crazy can happen right before your performance. So you have, you have 0% control. You can't control your casting. You can't control the opportunity you're given. You can't control, you literally have no control. So you're breeding a population of people who are absolute control freaks and then putting them into a tank of no control and being like, yeah. Good luck, everybody. (laughs) This is going to work out well. Everyone's going to be best friends. It's going to be great. See you later. (laughs) And it's just madness. And then you haven't, most of those people have grown up inside of this container. And so you don't really build a lot of the kind of skill sets that are, are about how you deal with that type of control because you're too focused building technical control. So it's like this very kind of bizarre, bizarre community I don't know what the what the word is well there's that but then there's also like you like for that for that and for anything like there any sort of environment like that where you have to hand over control there also has to be trust and I feel like that taps in on another thing is like 
specifically, and I can only speak to the environment I've spent my career in, which is New York City Ballet, that like it has not set, and I can only speak to the woman perspective of this. And I am quite sure that there is a similar perspective from the male point of view, but like the women are pit against each other, not necessarily um, asked to be in um, a constructive competition to drive the art form forward. It's just like cutthroat competition and this need to grab and acquire and hold on to roles. And that's because I've never had the permission to like, I've always been of the mindset that like, okay, you get to have this role for two shows. It's not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And like there will, and, and knowing that like, if you get a chance seasons later to return to it, that's a special opportunity, not, not a given, not a right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, my next question to you is going to be, Shelby and I speak so much about so many of the issues in the, in the ballet industry at large, they're relational. It's a relational issue. Like it's all this kind of relational dynamics. And I say all the time, if Shelby and I had met during our dance careers, I just wouldn't have even, it would have been traumatic for me. (laughs) Like we never would have been friends. We met after when I was on Broadway and she was at Columbia and we just like mind meld, soul meld, love for each other. But I would have been the most threatened, the most uncomfortable. I, I historically did not have great relationships with my coworkers and not in a really bad way. Just, I just personally had a really hard time. I just, I experienced jealousy and envy and I felt like bubble, like being a tight bubble, you can't just focus on yourself. Like it was very hard for me to navigate those relationships. And it's just, you know, we spoke with Megan Fairchild and, and she, she was saying, you know, it's so bizarre. You're growing up with these girls and you're supposed to, especially at a school like School of American Ballet, where you're living there, you know, you're supposed to be each other's friends and form these bonds, but you're just very obviously pitted against each other. So it creates a very complex sense of relationship. And I'm curious from your perspective, because that's, that is so challenging to write something, to share your heart, share your truth, and then, and ruffle some feathers perhaps in the process, because speaking the truth ruffles feathers, you know, not everybody loves to hear the truth. Like we can all dance around it, but when, when the truth is spoken, you know, it can ruffle feathers. And so I'm curious what your experience has been inside of this company dynamic and with relationships and and how you've navigated that. I mean, you're speaking to it a little bit, but that's super complex, you know? Are you you saying like, uh, just for further clarification, just went from when I first joined the company or now specifically following the release? I'd say both. Like, what was your experience before this kind of moment in time in which you've shared your truth like were you able did you always feel the pressure of that competitiveness and and the kind of tension there and then now after on the other side of it what does that feel like well because I was never like a and an interesting and complex relationship with my employer prior 
in that like he clearly saw something in me that I was never one of the chosen ones who was pit against other women so I had this and I'm also someone who as much as I love to be in the center of the room I am 1000% the peacock I but I also spent a lot of time in the back of the room and so I would see these relationships play out I would see how it would happen and I and I I learned a lot from that because I tend to take on other people's strife too and uh, um, so I was observant and I saw that and then I'd like and when we talk about being given the ability to shine given the permission to shine I felt like I was always I was like you know what screw it I'm gonna shine regardless even if it's back there and for some reason you know like I and and it came from advocating for myself like and, and working and so like somehow the shining from back there still managed to find its way to the front. And so like that also created its own sort of, don't, don't get me wrong, there are plenty, I've had plenty of experiences where women who have titles above mine were asking for roles that I do as a, as you know, and so like I have no, in the sense of hierarchy, of course, you know, I would get bumped mm. for many factors. Um, yeah. it's, a, it, it's, it's an interesting sort of place to be in. It's an interesting truth to say out loud and examine. Also, I've also had my experiences and feeling like hyper competitive with people that I could never be in competition with because they were just held at a different standard than what I was held at. Mm -hmm. So then it took this realization and me finally coming back to your original question of like, okay, well, they are only gonna see me as this, so I better start to embrace it, which was why, which is kind of like the genesis of my moniker, the rogue ballerina. And I, this like, I've always had this, I came into this career wanting to leave an impression, wanting to leave a legacy. I had no idea how that was going to take place, but I wanted to change the art form. And I think that story's still being written. Um, But I, I think things changed for me when I realized like, oh, okay, I'm gonna stop listening to people telling me that I would be a star on Broadway if I did, like, you should just go do that. They're never gonna see you this way. And being like, no, 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 they can see me the same way here in this world. I just need to stop viewing the attributes that the institution is telling me is a negative and a no-go and strikes against me. And I need to flip them and make them see that they are what make me so unique and so different and so valuable as an artist here at the ballet. And then it, and then I, then I, then I took the jump and went to Broadway and wow, like that was such, that was an incredible learning experience. And only, I never anticipated it, it highlighting how much the institution of ballet does not give agency to the artists that make it come alive and how much 
everyone, in, even though Broadway has a lot of work to do in terms of inclusivity and diversity, there was still a bare minimum of respect for every single person from stagehand to usher in a theater that got the show on every single night. It's still like, it's still like every season I ask, you know, may I have the names of the security guards at Lincoln Center? Cause I want to know like that, like there was a time in my life where I was 16, 17, I didn't care. And that's crazy to be so single. It's, it's, it's like to be so single focused and so hyper narcissistically focused on oneself and their trajectory and a career, trying to make themselves visible to one person. You miss out on the humanity that surrounds you. And so like that's kind of also wraps into this idea of rogue. I think there has to be a way for ballerinas for dancers in competitive environments like this to realize that we have to lift each other up because overarchingly the institutions that run, like they are going to see us as a commodity, but we are more than a commodity. We have to treat each other with respect and as humans or else the people at the top will never see us that way. That is where we have our power. That's where we can affect real and true change. And I think that's somewhere that I'm trying to understand and articulate further in my head, these new ideas about this is how we as dancers and companies across the globe need to start thinking moving forward. Mm, a gajillion percent drop, dropping all the mics, <laughs> dropping all the mics. Georgina, that's incredible. And it's not light work. I, it very much, I imagine feels like you're swimming upstream, um, in a current that is already so intense and uh, God, I, I have like a thousand follow-ups to what you, what you were just speaking to going back to your book, which by the way, everyone swan dive, the making of a rogue ballerina run. Don't it's want. supposed to be funny, by the way, it's not it's, all serious. Guys. It's hysterical. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, down to like the muckluck story of the cafeteria. Like that just brought me back. <laughs> that brought me back. Um, but it's interesting because of course, you know, there's a lot of books coming out right now that dancers and artists and performing artists are articulating their story, sharing their truth and their voice. And as Jess said, it is going to ruffle feathers. Um, I think that one thing that came up for me when you said that, which is like the bravery that it takes to voice your truth when you know it might come at the cost of, creating new factions or fissures or tension amongst your colleagues or colleagues, or even within the industry. When I, my first semester at Columbia university. So Columbia is notoriously known for um, being sued by its own students. <laughs> like people are constantly rioting, constantly picketing, constantly like shaming the institution for its betterment. And I'll never forget that the Dean said, in my orientation, he said, you know, we bring speakers to campus. And a lot of the times that upsets people because they might be like of a very strong political representation. And here's the thing, you guys, if we don't let people speak, it's the only reason is because we're too afraid to listen. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them. doesn't mean we have to believe their truth or that anyone's opinions of things need to get changed. But if we don't allow people the opportunity to speak, 
it's just a poor reflection on us that we're too afraid to listen. And I think that the same can be said in circumstances of telling your story. Like if people are going to choose to be particularly offended or intimidated by you coming forth and telling your hard truth, like your story, it, while hilarious, was also really hard earned and hard won. And I'm sure moments of, of your story were really hard for you to relive through and in such detail that you, you know, that allowed you to translate it into a story. But I think that what's so important about reading it and identifying in whatever way I could with your story. And I've had a very different experience, but similar training and similar environments that we've kind of endured um, is that that allows for resonance and that allows for humanity to come forward. And when you talk about supporting each other as dancers, as artists, as women, like it starts with the little stories, you know, identifying with the fact that you have so many siblings or come from a small town or have these big dreams for yourself or had to make really hard decisions at the cost of, you know, the timing of your career or promotion or reputation. And I doubt that at the end of the day, you'd regret one step of your path because that's what's informed who you are. And that's, what's continuing to inform the legacy that you're going to leave. And quite frankly, that you're already leaving, um, while still, gracing the stages of New York city and the world. And, um, and one of those things that you're doing is, uh, you, you are the co-founder of final bow for yellow face. Can you please chat with us about that? That's extraordinary. Thanks guys. Um, so final bow for yellow face is started with my best friend, Phil Chan, and it happened at a time where New York city ballet was starting to have discussions about inclusivity um, like it's early 2017 and I was you know I'd advocated for myself to be in those meetings and we got into discussions about representation on stage and I can't get into like specific details because those are safe spaces but it, a question came up being like well if I you know if this person gets cast is that token casting and I essentially was like, no, because everyone that gets into New York City Ballet has already proven through the workshop that they are capable of carrying a principal role. That's what's so awesome about the New York City Ballet. Everyone there is a baller dancer, mm-hmm. every single person. And so like, that's not an excuse. I mean, it was like you, and then so I, it came up it, that I was like, you're gonna have a bigger problem with the Chinese diverse mom on, on stage and how offensive it, having those caricatures. On. And, and so that, that spurred a discussion and I connected Phil to have a discussion with artistic and it in, in to, to his credit, he was open to learning and open to listening. And so like, that's something I have to, I have to, honor that and say, at least this person had like, they had reached, like he said it, they were getting thousands of letters, which goes to show you, you know, like if you have a problem, write letters people, um, cause they do get them apparently. And, <laughs> and, they, and, and so like it had reached this point where it had to be dealt with, but it, it was, and so to be able to facilitate a conversation that affected real change and then to have the artistic 
leadership make those changes and realize that, oh, you still can honor Balanchine's work and not offend people of Asian heritage in the audience. What a concept. And it doesn't require, you know, any sort of sacrilege. It just requires understanding of, you know, the propaganda at the time that a rice paddy hat is not necessarily, when you have a, you know, have a tour of the globe in the second act of Nutcracker and every single divertissement lead is of some sort of nobility or addressed to some sort of nobility. It makes no sense then to have the Chinese divertissement come out in a, a, a very like poor person's uh, like rice paddy hat and Fu Manchu with a cue, which actually was forced upon the Chinese mm. at risk of death. And so clearly his mind was like, because he didn't know. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I think it's important for our leaders to do that extra step to know what you're putting on stage. And like, I think that's bare minimum needs to happen. And I think that's also positive of giving people, not only people of color, but all dancers of color, uh, all dancers in some sort of voice and like, oh, well, because everyone, not everyone can have the whole thing figured out. Right. Like Phil sees a lot of things as a man that I don't see. And I, as a woman, that's why we work so wonderfully as a team. So that was a huge long-winded story, but we created a website and I was injured. I had like, at, at that point I had torn my ACL. I'm not one to stay idle in any sort of the word. So I was out in LA and we were like, wow, if we can affect change at the New York city ballet, and George Balanchine's in a cracker. Let's shoot the movie. Let's affect change in the Nutcracker across the entire United States. So we were like, how do we do this? We can't force people. We can't just like call out, you can't call someone a racist. Yeah. It, it's like we presented it as, and just like my book is, it comes from a place of love. This comes from a place of love that the, we, a pledge that I love ballet and in order for it to survive moving into the future, we have to acknowledge and remove the offensive caricature and outdated stereotypes that we have on stage of Asian heritage. And so you could take that sentence and you could apply it to any culture. Yeah. And, and we just did some grassroots efforts between he and I, we called a bunch of people and we're, and we did it smart. We, we know, like in January, we're like, Hey, this is the last thing you want to hear about Nutcracker, but we are, you know, we've gotten this attention. We're going to go, we're going to go like live with a New York times article in November. So it's like sign. Yeah. Or don't. But like, let's talk about it now so that like, we're not, we're not rushing to make changes. Let's have discussions now so that we can be inclusive. Let's plan a little bit because what we've just been regurgitating year after year can't it, it it's not it doesn't work yeah there's nothing mindful about it it's so mindless it's so autopilot and it's I love that what you just said in regards to calling out um Connor Holloway when we spoke with them said call um don't call out call in you know call in and I think that that's what you've done with this initiative it's, it's you're not going wrong wrong racist racist you're going we've got to change this. Let's have a conversation. And that's how you affect change. And I, I think that that's 
yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm just, I'm just having flashbacks to watching those performances and honestly not knowing, just not knowing, you know, and what's happening is that's what you're educating. And so when you're a young kid and you go to see the Nutcracker and you're white and you're a young white kid and you go with your grandma to see the Nutcracker and you see this portrayal, that's what you're teaching that, you know, and um, it's just Nutcracker is no small deal either. It's a huge deal. It's the biggest moneymaker of any company. And it's most people's first introduction to ballet. And it's, it's like incredibly formative experience for so many kids, you know? So to that point, like, why not since it's done in like by every regional school and by every major company here in the United States, why not look at it as a teaching tool? Especially exactly. since like in between the coasts, it's a lot of people's first introduction to other culture. Yeah. I mean, for, like, we've got, obviously we have TV now, but for, right. you know, before we had all the various streaming shows and inclusivity in those areas, this was a, this is a way for people to go around the globe in you know, two hours. So why not have that be not just a white Eurocentric lens, see that globe from that lens let's see it from a global lens. Mm -hmm. Let's make that, and that's why Phil and I chose the Nutcracker because we feel that it is, you know, like I have strong opinions about the Nutcracker, but like I, it's just like as an artistic endeavor, but like, (laughs) but it can be a teaching tool and I think it has importance and it is such a holiday tradition. And that was, and it, that is a phenomenon here in the United States because let's let's be honest, the Nutcracker was an absolute abject failure when it premiered mm-hmm. in Europe. Yeah, Nutcracker is so weird. Honestly, as you're saying that, I'm like, we could do. Should we do a rewrite? I feel like we could do a rewrite here of the Nutcracker. It makes no sense. She gets a bad gift. Her weird uncle gave her a her Nutcracker. Weird, her weird <laughs> uncle and gets then, her and then weird she, gift. Like, yeah, and she falls she, like, in love with the weird gift. Whole... Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> you got to do a rewrite. Okay, but I have one other question that I wanted to go back to about your experience on Broadway because cool story is that I followed you in Cats. I, I didn't play the white cat. Georgina starred um, in Cats on Broadway as the white cat, and which is the most beloved role. I mean, all the cats are beloved, but it's a f- freaking incredible role. Um, I definitely could not hit that develop. So it was not the role for me, but uh, (laughs) I did audition, but woof, yikes, girl. So um, extremely difficult, like to be doing that eight times a week on a rake. I mean, just physically, emotionally, and just really speaks to you as an artist that you were able to go from the New York City Ballet to this role on Broadway back into the New York City Ballet. I could never fathom going back to a ballet company after having had my Broadway career. And I would love to know just your experience. You spoke to it a little bit, but just mindset wise, what that was like for you performing on a Broadway stage, because we did speak with Megan about it. And for her, it was this very kind of transformative mindset shift where she kind of left that experience with a new take on you, you started to foreshadow it. They're just very, two very different industries that equip artists in very different ways. And for me personally, it was really challenging to release my ballet mindset for a while 
in the in the, that Broadway world, like I just couldn't accept that I had autonomy and that I had a certain amount of respect already handed to me just by getting the role. It was like, I felt like I had to earn it every day. I was going to get fired every day. And it's like, no, we love you. Like go shine girl. And it was very hard for me to kind of embrace that mindset. So I'm just curious to know what your experience was, was like with that. And if that was a turning point for you at all. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it, it like I first got a taste of it in on the town. Yeah. And so like, I actually had my debut first and foremost in the ensemble of On the Town for throwing it. I like Josh called me and was like, what are you doing? Someone's out. And like, we need someone to learn in a show like stat. And like, I know you wanted to like, and I was like, yeah, I'll come in. And so like, they taught me the, uh, the track that I was supposed to go in. And then they just taught me Ivy because City Valley dancers are fast learners. And then it turned out like two weeks later, you know, it, it just like that process of being thrown into a show, like that was a little disconcerting because like there's so many props and like everyone has, like they're so comfortable in the, yeah. what they're doing and then to have, so like that was, and, and they just, this trust being like, oh yeah, we're not gonna bring the doors down, but you know what doors to go through. And I was like, I absolutely have no idea what doors are going through, but it still was fine. Even when I messed it up, like, like my first show of Ivy, when I went on, like messed up the doors, I think, or if I did, like I like did them on the wrong counts and they were like, it's fine. It's, yeah. it's good, the show went on. Okay. And it's it's this like in this trust placed in the artist, like that was, it that was a it took like maybe like a day or two for me to be like oh you oh everyone's in this to like get the show on so that people enjoy the show and also like they respect me they know that I've trained my entire life they know yes they're going to tell me what I did wrong but they know I'm not trying to do it on purpose wrong <laughs> and so like a day later I was like I I loved I loved it I felt I felt all of a sudden um I felt seen in a way, and that there's, and just to be given the opportunity to step into an iconic role like Victoria and Cats on Broadway, I I feared that I perhaps might get um, complacent in doing the same show right. eight eight shows a week. But how foolish of me to think that like a show like Cats could ever be the same ever. And that performance being as ephemeral as it is could ever be the same. And I, every, like having that chance to do something upwards of 300 times is, it's, it's incredible to be able to continue to go in and make a, like minute choices. Obviously I'm not changing directions on stage, but like approach mindset. Like I had seven different ideas of who Victoria was and, and what her arc is and how important that character actually is beyond just being the beautiful ballerina moment in the show. Like she really is this exploration. Like she very could well go down the path of Grizabella. And then through that, this like crazy show that makes no sense, all of a sudden I was like, no, 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 this is a show about humanity and how we snap judge on so many different archetypes of humanity and the cats hated this woman because she got old and was no longer beautiful and I was like 
oh, that was a gut punch. That was like at like show 60 or 70. And I was like, oh my God, we hate her because she's just old. We don't even care that she like worked hard. She was like, just sex work is work. Like she's just trying to do. She's trying to make that money. You know, what's funny about cats is that I think people, it is at first glance, you're like, it has no story. It makes no sense. It's weird. And what, right. That's something that you could just say off, off, offhanded, but I felt like when I was performing cats, I felt like I was having a communion with God. Like I straight up was like having a communion with God. Did you guys have overlap at all in cats? I don't, did we ever do? No. I don't think we did. We, so right when The circumstances of me coming back were like, come back or like, it's so like I, so like talking about having to go back to what it was like to go back to the ballet. I sobbed. I sobbed from the moment I got off the subway at 70th Street till the moment I got to 65th Street. I was, I just, I felt like, and it was weird because like I wore a collar in the other show, but I felt like I was placed back into my leash and, and, and like, I was like, how do I, how do I make sense? It, It felt like giving up freedom in a weird way. Yeah. And and starting over. Sorry, I didn't mean to take you away from your story. Oh, no. Oh, no. I love it's it's true. I think that, you know, as we kind of round this out, so much of what we've been discussing and, and bonding over as artists is control and agency, which in this industry of dance specifically, historically does not lend to giving artists that. And um so we're in this new space in this new age where dancers and artists are figuring out ways to step into their own agency or to take back control, not in a way that's diminishing or irreverential to the art form itself, but to say like, okay, we want ballet to stay relevant. We want to keep fostering audiences to support this arts form's future. Something has to change. And, um, just this weekend, I was listening to a podcast. It was Amy Cuddy and Brene Brown, and they shared this little line that I just I just can't stop thinking about it where sometimes the the question that you have to ask yourself is not, do I want to get, how am I going to get to the top of this ladder? Right. Which as dancers, like we know from the time we're 10, we know exactly where we want to go top of the ladder, but is my ladder up against the right wall? Like sometimes that's where our control Mm. is, right? Like that's where our, we don't have control over getting to the top of the ladder 99.999% of the time, but we do have control over checking throughout the many stages and seasons of our personhood and career and humanity is my ladder still up against the right wall for me. And, um, Georgina, I feel like in such a beautiful way, you're shifting your ladder, you're staying grounded in your training and where you come from and what you've built for yourself. Um, but you're shifting your ladder in a really powerful and empowering way that allows not only you the permission and ability um, to, to embody the type of artist that you wish to become, but it's also taking a lot of other people with you and really setting a new ground. And we just honor you for that. Oh, wow. You all gave me the feels this morning. Don't make me cry on my day off. <laughs> Save those stage Thank tears, girl. That. I mean, also like Renee Brown, just like, like being in the ring, like you can pass judgment and you can criticize when you are in the ring. I come back to that quote daily. Yeah. There, there are a lot of things that I'm like, no, you are, you are in the ring. And so like, that's something that is something. 
We yeah, can't wait to have that on the podcast. You yeah, know? Renee, can't wait to have you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, Georgina, do what's coming up for you? Is there anything you'd like to leave with our audience besides obviously everyone's running to go buy the book, but what else can we look forward to from you in the coming future? Uh, you can, Well, just like generally, there will be more storytelling. I have fallen in love with this form of expression. I, I think that there's, there's so much, I'm only just getting started with, I feel a new inspiration, a new artistic um, drive, but you will see me on the stage, once again, God willing, COVID willing, um, in Russian seasons on the 22nd, the 26th and the 29th. And then I'm super, super, super excited to share with the world what I've been working on with the, the Fosse Verdon Legacy, which is a trio called Sweet One Sweet, which in turn, this is bringing it full circle in terms of honoring artists' con- contributions to choreography. We are honoring Gwen Verdon and her immense gifts and how she just, she gave so much to that partnership. And that's also terrifying because y'all, it's Gwen Verdon. Nobody is Gwen. Just like nobody is Georgina. Just like n- n- nobody is Shelby. No one is Jessica, but still no one is, no one is Gwen Verdon. <laughs> um, so yeah, that uh, like, I, I've been doing a little bit of, I've been doing triple duty between like book and rehearsing for City wow. Center and getting ready for a return to stage at New York City Ballet. So th- there's a few things that are coming up, but also, you know, stay tuned, follow me on all the things. I'm trying to be better. I am always thinking like nobody really cares, but I guess people do care. So I'm trying to be better about announcing yes. projects. Yes. I might be in a museum soon with this piece called Zodiac, which is a collaboration between uh, Paola Pristini. She's a composer, um, three women poets. And I do a PA that was done during the pandemic. So Dai wow. is a Buto dancer in Japan. And we went up to Masmoka with the director and we sort of virtually did a pass. So it will be superimposed on each other. It's good. It's that talk about wild. That is really out there. But I saw first rough cut of it. And I'm like, that's cool. That's kind of very cool. And two totally different disciplines, like Bhutto dancing and classical ballet. Wow. And like my first foray into choreographing my own stuff, which is like, I'm not a choreographer. Not my gift. You can do anything. Oh my gosh. Not about you, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. And your Instagram is at Georgina underscore Pascogan. Perfect. We'll leave it there too, but oh so excited. Oh my god. Huge, huge little shout out in the New York Times arts and culture section recently. Just your beautiful shining face. Holy moly. Just like I mean, had they known, I would have like maybe put on some like that I'm not gonna do I'm not gonna say anything in negative about myself I'm gonna embrace that because it's pretty still awesome regardless yes yes yes. like we everyone was like so casual about that shoot and we had no idea (laughs) that it was gonna be like that oh Oh, god very exciting 
so much Very momentum. Exciting. New York City Ballet is back. The Rogue Ballerina never left. More to come. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your time and sharing the story of your becoming. Oh, gosh, ladies, thank you so much. Our thank pleasure. You. Beautiful day in Merit for your re premiere back to the stage. Thank you. Bye, Jordan. Here's to not falling. <laughs> or falling with grace. <laughs> Want to connect further with our community at Artists Becoming? Rate and review this podcast and subscribe to stay on top of our weekly guest artist conversations and our small chats, big topics. Check out www.artistbecoming.com to learn more about our monthly subscription membership filled with on-demand guided meditation and yummy yoga practices to support your unique journey as a performing artist. Follow along on Instagram at Artist Becoming for sneak peeks and inspiring content and DM us the dream artists, athletes, performers, psychologists that you'd love to hear from or topics you'd like for us to unpack. Sharing is caring, so fire up that group chat, share to your stories, comment, share, 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 and just stay connected with us. We are here for your becoming.